Hello, I'm Charles Gotthard, Editorial Director at Economist Impact. Welcome to this Back to Blue podcast, part of an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation to catalyse progress towards a zero-pollution ocean. The dust has settled on the UN Ocean Conference held in Portugal in late June. The conference brought together world leaders, scientists and activists to mobilise action to protect the global ocean. Delegates considered a diverse set of issues, from overfishing to governance of the high seas. Two of the most critical problems discussed were the impact of climate change on small island developing states, or large ocean states as many are now calling them, and the growing problem of ocean pollution. To find out more, I spoke on the sidelines of the UN conference with President of Palau, Surangel Whips, who told me about the critical challenges that his country is facing. It's important for us, and moving forward, giving the attention to the I wouldn't say small island states. We need to change the name. It's large ocean states. You know, I was sharing at the high-level panel on oceans today that, uh, you know, at least we feel that there's momentum. And people are, are, are changing and making commitments. And, and now, you know, we just need to see the action. It's positive. I mean, that's, that's important. What we've been saying is we cannot do it alone. And so to see that the world is finally waking up and finally moving forward, and now let's take care of the high seas, because that's two-thirds of the ocean. You are obviously concerned, though, about funding mechanisms behind something yeah. like 30 by 30. What do you really feel is necessary for you know, the global community to do to be able to ensure that there is equity in this process of choosing large spaces of the ocean to protect? So there, there, there's two uh, challenges. When you say close them, they lose that resource. They lose the revenue funding. How do you find ways to, to improve that? And one is, I think it's just for us in developing the Blue Prosperity Fund, the thought of saying, okay, we also have to get the consumers to change their behavior. So by having sustainably caught fish, they should be able to understand that it costs a little more, but they're doing the right thing. We shouldn't be competing with all that behavior. And, and so, you know, I think that's the next step is making people responsible to buy, buy right, you know, because when it comes down to it, it's all of us making the right decision. We've done great on stopping bottom trawling, but now what's the new thing? Deep sea mining, right? And it's going to be the same issue for islands again, because I'm hungry over here. I've got to take care of my people. They're offering a lot of money to come here and deep sea mine. So no, no, don't do that. But there's no income to that. But if you do that, you're going to raise the carbon levels and well, but so is every other industrialized countries. On that question of climate change, obviously being here at the Ocean Summit, the, yeah. the UN Ocean Conference, ocean acidification has come up a lot. I mean, I've been yeah. at several meetings around that, and it's clearly a real problem for the reefs plastics. and plastic. Can you just tell us a little bit about where you, your concerns are in relation to ocean acidification in particular, and then perhaps plastics just after? As far as ocean acidification in Palau, it hasn't had a large impact yet, but we are concerned about it. I, I do know that our coral reef center found that we have corals that are resilient to that and maybe an, an opportunity for us to share those corals with the world. That's one positive thing. We also found with uh, coral bleaching because of the um, high temperatures that uh, we had it back in 97. Uh, there was widespread that when it came around in 2015, when we had the droughts again. So I guess more resilient corals are 
or more adaptive ones have survived, uh, which is good news for corals. We also have jellyfish that disappeared and disappeared again for a period of three years. They go like into hibernation, but a big impact on our economy because then tourist owned companies will have the jellyfish to swim with. What about plastics? But plastic, you... now plastics is getting, it's, it's out of control. You know, it's everywhere you go. You, and this is plastics you, coming in. From it's coming in. Yeah, and there, there, there's, there's an island up north and there's a gentleman there that all he does is collect slippers from the beach. And, and he has a, he, he calls it the slipper museum out on the beach. <laughs> He's turned it into a slipper park. But, you know, it's slippers, it's toothbrushes, it's lighters. It's, it's like everything you can think of. And they just throw it. And unfortunately, plows where three currents converge, coming from the south, coming from the east, coming from the west. So we get everybody's trash. we got to stop treating the ocean as a garbage can. Palau has a pretty good program. We're fortunate. We started a recycling program. It's been almost 10 years, right? So, so collection it, recycling is collect, happening. Collect, yeah, yeah, the bottles, they go, they're recycled. Because we put a 10 cent tax on every plastic bottle. But now they get five cents when they take it back. So there's an incentive to do it. And then we use the other five cents to collect and process. And it's a win-win. Yeah, the other thing was we have we have a plant that actually uses for fuel too. Oh, do you? Yeah, so they have glass blowing and and other things that they and this is a project with the Japanese. Jake has really helped us develop that uh, solid waste management program. Well, I hope we get a chance to come and see that in Palau at some point. Especially, yeah, thank so you very much indeed. Once again, if everybody take take care of their own trash, it wouldn't be a problem. Plastic pollution is an important challenge for the ocean and one that was widely discussed at the UN Ocean Conference. Yet the broader question of how other types of pollution affect ocean health was largely absent. Back to Blue's Jessica Brown met with Professor Bethany Carney Almroth of the University of Gothenburg about her research into marine pollution and why she and her colleagues believe the pollution planetary boundary has been breached in the ocean. So it's a framework that tries to understand how human activities are changing the planet. We have moved into a new epic of time called the Anthropocene, where humans are the largest driving force of change. And the impacts of our activities, our production, our consumption, our changing of the environment is extreme. So we are, we are like the biggest driving force of change on the planet. And what the planetary boundaries tries to do is to understand those changes over time scales and, and, and space to the entire globe that are uh, a bit beyond what an individual can comprehend. So it's very hard for our homo sapiens brains to understand changes that are occurring over thousands of years or changes that are occurring thousands of kilometers away from us. The Boundaries takes our collective knowledge and boils it down into something that is very comprehensive and easily understandable. So the group that described this first was led by Johan Rockström at the Stockholm Resilience Center. They published their first paper in 2009, and they divided their the boundaries into nine different categories where humans are driving big changes, and these changes are affecting the stability of Earth systems functioning, so how the planet is working. And it also changes the safe operating space, is the, the terminology they use. So what they're looking there at there is the, the Holocene-like conditions that existed before we became this massive force of change. And it was, this is a time period that was very stable. So temperature and climate and biodiversity, like all of this was very stable for a lot of years or relatively stable. And humans prospered. Our societies grew, our species grew to a point where we became this massive force of change. And 
have destabilized the planet. So boundaries try to compare the Holocene-like conditions with the conditions we have today and understand like how far can we push things before we maybe tip over into into more instability and there thereby increase uncertainty and decrease our ability to thrive and survive on the planet. So how far can we push things? Are we at risk of a tipping point? A number of the boundaries have been identified as having been transgressed. Absolutely. The boundaries include things like um, climate change, ocean acidification, nitrogen and phosphorus cycles. So very like basic geophysical chemical changes on the planet. The one that we worked on is called novel entities. Can you tell me about that? What, what is a novel entity? A novel entity is something, it's a new thing, really. Like, just really technically, it's a new thing. But that means things, things that didn't exist before humans. So by definition, the novel entities did not exist during the Holocene period. There are a number of papers that came before our work that try to describe what the novel entities are. And these include things like chemicals, synthetic chemicals, man-made chemicals. Metals are included there too. Metals are natural elements, so obviously they existed before, but the forms in which they exist now and the places that they exist now, the mobility of them has changed by our activities. GMO, genetically modified organisms, things like this are like all the new things that we made. Uh, materials, nanomaterials, polymers, these kinds of things are included there too. So are these a problem? Because these are things that are hailed as scientific advancements in many ways and great for society and great for the economy. So. Better living through chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what's the problem? So a lot of these materials have made our lives better. And just to, be, to have it said, we could not have the lives that we have today without plastics, for example. They're, they're really central to the way that we live our lives and to the technologies we have available to us, to medicine, to infrastructure, to all of these things. So yes, they're very important. But yes, they're also a problem. And how we describe those problems depends on what scale we're looking at for chemical molecules we try to understand their, their toxicity and their modes of action, how they might be changing the physiology of an organism that is exposed. Plastics, uh, beyond that like molecular structure, also have a physical nature, which means that they can interact in the environment in, in other ways, like ghost fishing as an example, or harming turtles, causing flooding, covering entire areas of land in these massive landfills that we see in a lot of places in the world. So there's some differences in how we might study the impacts of these things, but they're definitely having massive impacts on the Earth and also destabilizing Earth's functions at this point. So can you tell me a little bit about the research? Because the research you released in the last couple of months made global headlines, made a big splash. What were the findings? Why is it so important? We spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we might set a boundary. And to be clear, we didn't set a boundary. We didn't give a number to this because we couldn't. What we're talking about when it comes to novel entities, it's 350,000 different entities. And that makes the novel entities boundaries different than the others. Like with climate change, they're looking at one parameter like temperature or carbon dioxide levels. And when it comes to ocean acidification, it's pH. So they're looking at one thing. We're looking at 350,000 things. And there's a lot of knowledge gaps in there. We don't even know necessarily what all these 350,000 things are. They might be ambiguously described or they might be proprietary information. So the information is not openly available. So we don't even know what they all are. When it comes to toxicity and impacts in the environment, we also have a lot of knowledge gaps. We might understand what's a couple thousand 
to be honest, of these chemicals do, maybe 1%, we understand their toxicity and their mechanisms. And then if we're going to try to understand beyond a laboratory experiment, like what happens in a zebrafish embryo or what happens in a daphnia in a petri dish in the lab during one week's time, we might know. But we don't necessarily know what they're doing in the environment over long time periods and interacting with all these other thousands of novel entities that are out there. So a lot of knowledge gaps. What we tried to do was build a weight of evidence story and tried to find uh, different control variables that we could feed data into to understand what's happening on a planetary scale. And we moved from a, a technological domain in, in production capacity, raw material extraction, practices like oil drilling, fracking, mining, into productions of novel entities, and then looking at how they're leaking out of our hands in societies. Like, do we have the ability to maintain them in society? Do we have functioning waste management, waste management infrastructure? Do we have functioning water treatment facilities for effluents from industries or from sewage and so on? Or are they leaking out? And do we know when and where and how they're leaking out of our hands? What are those volumes? And then trying to understand the fate of these chemicals and plastics. Where are they going in the environment? And then from there into the impacts and destabilization of the earth. And if we start at the beginning of the story with production, we see increases in production of plastics and chemicals, and some of the curves are just shooting straight upwards, and they're predicted to increase into the future. A lot of companies have been increasing their capacity to produce plastics, for example, and we might see a tripling in production rates. And given the problems that we see today, that's an indication that this is not sustainable. This is not sustainable, not as things look right now. And then moving from there into where they're, uh, whether or not we can keep them in societies. And the answer to that is also no. They're leaking out of our hands. A study came out in 2020 showing that even if we were to implement all of the best practices and strategies that we have on the table right now regarding banning single-use products and plastic bags and so on, increasing waste management infrastructure, we will still be losing more and more of these things to the environment. So we can't maintain them in our structures. We don't have the capacity to do that. When it comes to the chemicals, we're inventing new chemicals every day, and we don't understand their toxicity. There's a lot of knowledge gaps around the toxicity, which means we're not managing them, we're not regulating them, and we're not making sure that we're not causing harm to the environment. There's a lot of danger signs here. When it comes to a fate in the environment, we see plastics literally in every niche on the entire planet. There's no environment left on the planet that is not contaminated. That includes the deepest parts of the oceans, that includes the polar regions, that includes the atmosphere, snow and rain. It's literally everywhere. And there's evidence of a lot of chemicals that also have global spread. Persistent chemicals that don't degrade are being found in food chains and Arctic regions, causing reproductive damage to top predators there. We have, we've globally polluted the entire planet. So we know, we know that our production rates are increasing. We know that release to the environment is increasing. We know that we've polluted the entire planet. Then the story of what's happening, what's the impact of that, is building. We're gaining more and more evidence there. But we're seeing things like changes in reproduction in wild animals. We're seeing changes in the way species are moving if they're hitchhiking on plastics. Changes in microbial communities in the environment that are responsible for producing nutrients in the food chain or for cycling nitrogen and phosphorus through the food chain for, for the way the carbon pump is working in the oceans. Like We're affecting all of these like major basic functionings of the planet through these chemicals and plastics. So by building that story and putting together all these pieces of evidence, we could come to the conclusion that we've transgressed the safe operating space. And how does that interact with the other planetary boundaries? Yeah, so again, the story is building, we're gaining evidence as more research is conducted. 
but we can find that there are definitely strong connections between the Napa entities and the other boundaries. We can take climate change for an example. So plastics are produced from fossil fuels to 98 or 99%, and fossil fuels are the major driver of climate change. So they're like a, an in-between step from, from oil to carbon dioxide release, where they sort of become this solid carbon climate change piece of material that we have in our hands for a little while. And if they're incinerated or if they can, might slowly degrade in some environments, they're releasing carbon and also particles and, and chemicals to the environment. So there's strong connections and ties there. And just the extractive practices of mining fossil fuels, of drilling, of fracking are very damaging to the environment. There's a lot of physical changes to the environment and also contamination from these processes. A lot of chemicals are also produced from fossil fuels. So we have a lot of agrochemicals and petrochemicals that have the same source. So we can tie back just through fossil fuels very strongly to climate change. Biodiversity loss is something that I think is understudied. And the drivers of chemicals and affecting biodiversity loss would require more work, but there are some early indications that chemicals are a driving force for changing biodiversity and adding to extinction pressures in the environment. Now, this is the hardest question. What's the answer? What's the solution? That's a good, okay, hard question. So <laughs> what's the answer? So we need to really simplify what the market looks like. When it comes to plastics, maybe we can reduce our polymer footprint, we can reduce the numbers of polymers that we're producing, the kinds of polymers, which would make it easier to control them, to regulate them, to study their impacts, but also create markets where we could recycle them and maybe create materials and products that much more easily could be recycled. And if we're talking about plastics recycling, one thing that's extremely important to talk about in that conversation is chemicals, because plastics are not just polymers, they're also chemicals, like 10,000 chemicals, maybe more that are used in plastic production and plastic product production. And a lot of these are toxic. At least two and a half thousand of them are known to have hazardous properties. And we're using these in products that we come into contact with every day and then we're then releasing into the environment. So we can't recycle plastics or use them safely without addressing that question. And given that, I said the number 2,500-ish, it's 25% of the chemicals we know we have in plastics, but even more of the chemicals in plastics, we don't have data on. So we don't even know what they're doing. We don't know if they're safe. We don't know what they're doing. So there's, again, really big knowledge gaps there. So we need to have more responsibility about what kinds of products we're using in our societies and that companies that are producing them have better knowledge there and can ensure that the products they're making are safe. There seems to be a lot of momentum building and we're here at the UN Ocean Conference and a lot of the discussion has been around plastics. Within the next two years, we'll see negotiations for a plastics treaty, a global treaty on plastics happening. But so much of the discussion has been around restricting single-use plastics, encouraging recycling, moving to a circular economy. There's been much less of a discussion about the chemical nature of plastics and about chemical pollution in the environment and in the ocean more broadly. Why do you think that is? Is that, is that a problem? Yeah, it's definitely a problem, but I, and I think it ties to the fact that plastics are easier to talk about. You can see them, you understand them, people know what we mean when we say plastics. They can see the damage that plastics are, are causing with their own eyes. It's very easy to understand. It's a story that's very easy to tell. Chemicals are more complicated. There's a lot of them. They have long names we can't pronounce. Their drivers of toxicity are more difficult to communicate if we're talking about like molecular mechanisms and things like this. And there's so many of them. So I think we have a, a little bit of a communication challenge there. I think that's part of the problem. What's your wish list, right? You talked about some of the solutions, but blue sky thinking, if there's no constraints, what would you like to see happen? 
In the best case scenario, I think we're reducing consumption. We're reducing consumption of Earth's resources and we're reducing production then of, of novel entities, of plastics and materials. That's, that's the pie in the sky answer. So capping production, just putting a max, like this is how much the planet can tolerate. This is how much we as a global society can tolerate. And one thing I also want to make sure to mention in this conversation is that the burdens, uh, the effects, the impacts of plastics and chemicals is not equally distributed across the planet. So there are, there are consumption patterns in some places of the world where we're benefiting more from use of these materials and chemicals, while the burdens, the costs of them are incurred in other places where you might have production sites or waste management. So there are people on the planet that are carrying a much heavier burden than others. This is something we also need to account for in this global accounting for these materials. We need to have a look at that and see, make sure that we're just and fair and equitable in what we're doing. And bring it back to the ocean because we are at the ocean conference. I mean. Have you been happy with the discussions that you've seen here in Lisbon this week? Is there something else that you would like to see being being addressed? You know, what's your takeaway from the conference? So I think there, there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of groups involved. It seems to be a very organic movement, and there's a lot of people, a lot of groups, a lot of ideas. I think in regards to the plastic treaty, we need to see a more streamlined, effective communication. Science to policy mechanisms need to be strengthened. So the decisions that are going to be made in those negotiations need to be based on evidence and science. So we have to find a good way to make sure that that can happen. So definitely evidence-based decision-making and also making sure that we're including these equitable questions. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to it. Thank you very much, Professor Bethany Carney Almaraf, Professor of Ecotoxicology at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. In March, UN member states agreed to begin negotiating a global treaty aimed at stopping plastic pollution. Back to Blue will be covering these important negotiations in the coming months. In particular, we'll be examining the question of how chemical pollution relates to plastic pollution and how this should be covered in the treaty. Thank you all for listening. Stay tuned and subscribe to this channel for more content from Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation. You can also sign up to our newsletter on backtobueinitiative.com so we can keep you posted about our latest content.